Malachi is the book we're in, and last week we reflected on the Lord's question to Judah in Malachi 1.6. If I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? And I asked you, church, to reflect on how your lives, your time, your affections, your devotion to the Lord and to his temple now, the church, how those reflect the honor you give to the Lord. What those say about the fear of the Lord is in your heart and the honor that you want to give him. So I asked you to reflect on that, and this was meant to be a serious question worthy of serious reflection. But as I came away from that message, I had a bit of a sense that before we get too much further into the significant questions that are very introspective in Malachi that make us examine our lives, related to these critiques, these very strong, sobering critiques the Lord brings, I thought, you know, I, I feel more and more that we need to slow down a moment and ask, what does it mean to consider Malachi as a new covenant people? What does it mean to look at this book as a people in Jesus Christ? What difference does it make to go through an Old Testament prophet written to a people under the Old Testament covenant and try to relate it to ourselves? And so today, I, I just wanna kind of pause in Malachi and, and ask this question. What does it mean to consider Malachi, a book written for a people under the old covenant as a people who are a new covenant people? I just think this is really, really crucial because we're not under the covenant of Moses. We're under the covenant of Jesus Christ and that needs to make a big difference in how we process, not just a book like Malachi, but I realize as I consider this, how we process our lives, every day of our lives right now that we're not under the Mosaic Code, we're under the covenant of Jesus Christ. So I wanna ask that question. How do we look at a book like Malachi, the Old Testament prophets, consider even the commands of God, consider even the laws of God as a people under the grace of the new covenant in Jesus Christ? So first I wanna just ask this question, what's a covenant? Make sure we're clear about that. What's a covenant? If we think of a covenant today, we probably think of a marriage covenant or an HOA covenant, like a housing covenant. And there's some, you know, there's some connections there with what a covenant was in the Old Testament because a covenant in its most basic form is an agreement between two parties. But in the Old Testament, in the old ancient pathways of the Semitic peoples, the Jewish people, it, it, it was a solemn agreement. In ancient times, a covenant would be made between nations as a peace treaty. And these treaties would have oaths they would have witnesses. They were big deals. They were bindings. There were blessings for keeping these agreements and there were curses, punishments, dire consequences for breaking the agreement. And oftentimes, the covenant would be established or inaugurated by the slaughter of an animal. Cut the animal in half. And this would signify the seriousness of the agreement and to illustrate the threat of death for whoever broke the agreement. When God raised up Moses, he led the Israelites to freedom through Moses. He brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he inaugurated what's called the Mosaic Covenant. When you hear the word old covenant, that's what we're talking about. The covenant that God made with the Israelites, with Moses. We refer to this as the old covenant. The Old Testament really is this, the old covenant, that's what that word means. So this covenant, this agreement between God and Israel 
began there with Moses when God gave the law to the people through Moses. And, and when, when God brought the people there, he spoke to them and he said, today, he said to them in Deuteronomy 29 about this covenant, he said this, listen, you stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, and from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws you water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would be his people and he would be their God. This was the climax of the covenant. God would be their God. They would be his people with all the glory and all the blessings involved. God gave them his laws, summed up in the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of more laws, civil laws, religious laws, as well as moral laws. If Israel obeyed God's law, God made an oath to them. He would pour incredible blessings upon them. Peace, plenty, health, joy, protection, sanity, (laughs) mental health, physical health. God would protect their crops. They would flourish in their child raising. God would defend their boundaries. He would hate their enemies. He would bless their offspring in every aspect of their lives with material, emotional, health, and prosperity. That was God's oath in the covenant. But God had another oath in the covenant. If they rejected his commands, his oath was that there would be terrible cursing upon them. God would curse the land so there would be no food. He would curse their offspring. He would bring them sickness and disease and madness and despair. And he would drive them from the land with a siege so horrible in their desperation and depravity they would resort to cannibalism. He would scatter them to the ends of the earth and make them a byword to the world. If Israel rejected God by ignoring his commands, God promised, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy again, This can all be found in Deuteronomy 28 through Deuteronomy 31. These blessings and curses, by the way. He says to Israel, if they disobey him and reject him, you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. These are the words of God to his people as he enters into covenant with them. And to inaugurate this covenant, God had Moses slaughter animals 
and then take the blood and pour it on the altar before the Lord, pouring the blood, making this agreement witness before God, before the Lord. And he took the blood and then he cast it on the people. People were standing in a great crowd and Moses just sprayed blood all over them. And then they promised. They said, this is Exodus 24, 7 through 8. They said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, if God isn't going to keep his covenant to bless you or to curse you, may he be like these slaughtered animals. If you aren't going to keep the covenant you've made with God to obey him, may you be like these slaughtered animals. The seriousness of the Mosaic covenant, the warnings, the blood, it reflects the seriousness of God, brothers and sisters. The seriousness of the I am that I am. The one in whom you live and breathe and have your being. The one by whom you can't take a single breath without proclaiming your dependence. The one before whom you can't take a single step without affirming that every molecule of every floor under your feet is held by his holy power. There isn't a heartbeat that goes through your veins that wasn't sourced in and held together and sustained by Almighty God. He is the greatest and most and only worthy object of our greatest worship and obedience and trust. And when man rejects his maker, regardless of how civil and kind a wonderful a person he may be to his fellow man, when he rejects his maker, when he refuses to be ruled by the creator who made him, he betrays the very foundation of all reality. He betrays the foundation of all that is good, and he betrays the source of all that is good. He does the most unjust thing that can be done in the universe. When you betray your maker, when you reject your creator, and say, I will not have you as my God and my ruler, you do the most unjust thing that can be done in the universe. I'm gonna pause here because I need to pray, and I've asked Holly to pray for this message, and um, I'd like to ask you to do that now, that the Lord would open our hearts and everything on your heart to pray. Would you pray for us, Holly? Our Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, glorious, beautiful, is your name and worthy to be praised and adored above all things. This morning has been sobering 
and it is good. Would you continue to speak to us, to give us ears to hear? Would you continue to search us and try us and know us, our hearts and our thoughts? And reveal to us if there is any grievous way within us. And then lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, apart from you, we have no good thing. But with you, we have every good thing in you. So we praise you. We look to you, we rely upon you, we trust you. We pray that no word would drop to the ground that is shared by Albert through your spirit, that we would receive all that you want for us to receive, and that you would help Albert to speak all that you have for him to share, not a word beyond. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, we praise you, we honor you, we need you, and we are so grateful that we have you. In your name, amen. Thank you so much, sister. God made this covenant with Israel, the consequences for Obedience were incredible, and the consequences for disobedience were horrific. For the last 2,000 years, until about 1947, Israel as an ethnic people have wandered the world as a persecuted people. Their history is a sad testimony to God's faithfulness to this covenant. It is one of persecution Poverty, ravaging, harassment. And right before 1947, horrible Holocaust. For so much of this time, the warnings for rejecting God detailed in Deuteronomy 28 testify to the truth of his world. The rest of the world who rejects God will not fare any better. The Lord is serious about his commitments to his holiness, to his glory. Well, we have very good news. This morning, we're going to take communion as we close. And when we do it, we're going to remember these words from Jesus Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus said he came to establish a new covenant. So we've talked about what covenants are. We've talked about what those mosaic covenant is. And now I want to talk about where the old covenant, mosaic covenant, they're interchangeable. And now I want to ask the question, what is this new covenant? We hear of it first during the old covenant, which is encouraging. <laughs> it wasn't like God said, hey, we're going to change everything today. No, he, he told his people while they lived in the old covenant times, that he was going to bring a new covenant someday. He said this most famously in Jeremiah 31. Listen to the Lord speak to his old covenant people as they walked with him under the old covenant. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be a people. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In Jeremiah 31, Yahweh announces that there is a day coming when he will create a new covenant with his people. And why? He had them in covenant. The answer is because the old covenant was a failure. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant from the perspective of soundness or reasonableness or goodness. It it was good. The laws were good. They were holy. This is what the people should have done. And it was reasonable for a God as holy and majestic as he is to call them to live out this covenant with him. It was a privilege to live in this covenant. We hear that in Malachi. You should be honored to have me as your God, but you despise me. The problem was not with the covenant. The problem was with the people. The problem was with us. The old covenant could 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 proclaim to a person what was true, what God was worthy of, but it could do nothing to produce that in the person. The old covenant proclaimed that God was worthy of the greatest worship, of steadfast love, and of real affection, but it could do nothing to bring a man to love and to trust and to obey that God. The Mosaic covenant told man what he ought to be, but it could not make him what he ought to be. Do you hear that? The Mosaic Covenant told man rightly what he ought to be, but it could not make him or her what they ought to be. And all the preaching of the law and the pointing out how we do not love God will never change that. God has to change that. Paul says in Romans 8, He's speaking of the person who is as they are apart from God's work in their heart. And here's what he says about the person, the human condition as it is apart from the work of God to create new obedience in them. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh, that is the mind that is the normal human mind apart from God's work is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. 
This does not mean that people who do not belong to Jesus Christ cannot do good things. It means that whatever they do, they never do out of a worship of God or out of a love for God. They are hostile to God. You know them. You were like them. And, and whoever does all the nice things they do in a state of rejection of their creator is in a constant state of rebellion um, through all the nice things that they do. And this offends God greatly. And we cannot change this condition. It, it has been our born nature since our first father, Adam, chose to create, to chose created things over God in the garden. We've talked a lot about that over the last few months. So I don't want to belabor that except to say again that if you don't understand that, you cannot understand the Bible. You cannot make sense out of redemption, out of heaven, out of hell, and our need for a savior. So if you don't understand this, please talk to me. I will try to help you. But as we've said many times before, our biggest issue is not how we treat one another. It's how we treat God. And so God has to come inside our hearts and at the very deepest level, he must change us. And, and this is the nature of the new covenant. The old covenant was external, written on stone. The new covenant is internal. Laws written, Jeremiah says, on our very hearts, including the greatest law, the summation of the law, to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. God does an internal work in the heart of those who are in the new covenant. The Lord spoke through Ezekiel this way when he promised of the day that Jeremiah promised of. And he said this, I will take you from the nations, he's speaking to Israel, I will gather you from all the lands, all the lands that God has exiled them to in his punishment, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Listen, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the new covenant. This is what the new covenant means. It is a life change, a heart change, a new heart. At the deepest part of you, a new person comes into existence. This, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus meant when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant. But notice what Jesus also said. He said, it's the new covenant in my blood. Why did he say this? Why didn't he say, this is the new covenant that gives you a new heart. This is the new covenant that puts my spirit in you. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Why did he say that? Recall what I said about covenants earlier. There was a curse for breaking the covenant. That was foreshadowed at the beginning of the covenant's inauguration. An animal is slaughtered as a sign of what would be required of the covenant breaker if they broke the covenant. 
their slaughter. This is why Jesus said, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. On our behalf, if Jesus is going to take a new covenant to us, if he's going to bring and establish a new covenant, he must take care of what happened under the old covenant. He must become for us the covenant breaker. He must receive the oaths that God made to those who break the covenant if a new covenant is going to be forged. And so Jesus becomes what we are, the law breaker. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus became the sacrifice, the slaughtered lamb who bears the terrible punishment that we have merited. Galatians 3.13, Galatians 3.13 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember that the old covenant expressed the laws of God, his holy heart. Most supremely, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of that law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. By virtue of his blood, the curses, these awful curses we read about in Deuteronomy for breaking God's law are fulfilled. God is a God of justice. He promised a just punishment for disobedience to his holy law in Jesus Christ for you. Justice is satisfied. For me, justice is satisfied. And God is able, therefore, to lawfully enter into a new covenant with us. One not based on our obedience, not founded upon our obedience and our promises before God as the Israelites' covenant was. But on the worth of Christ, the worth of his shed blood that always says before God about our sins, Paid in full. This is shocking grace. The blood of the Lamb of God proclaims in God's courtroom over your life through all of your sins, forgiven, paid in full. Satan comes to accuse and to tell God what you did last week, what you did last night. And Jesus says, my body was shed my body, I was slaughtered for what they did. I was slaughtered for that transgression, for that hateful word, for that ungrateful complaint, for that pornography, for that adultery, for that contempt, for that greed, that withholding of mercy when mercy was asked for. I was slaughtered for that. And the Lord says, I'm satisfied and I will continue to be merciful to one who deserves my anger and punishment. In Christ, we are acceptable to God. Through Christ, we enter into this new and everlasting covenant because of Christ and the worth of his shed blood which is ever 
everlasting. He is everlasting. The worth of his shed blood is everlasting. And therefore, your salvation, brothers and sisters, is everlasting. But let's come back to the greatest promise of this new covenant from Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you. I believe this is the greatest promise of the new covenant. Not just forgiveness, but because of forgiveness, I will put my spirit within you. It is wonderful, extremely, infinitely precious to be saved from eternal shame, contempt, and damnation. It is exceedingly better to be given the Lord God as your very heart to come and live with you in the deepest place of your being forever. The new covenant means God puts his spirit in our spirit. At the core of our innermost being dwells the living God. He works new affections in us, new desires in us, new power to love him and to want him and to obey him. The new covenant means that where once our hearts were ruled by unbelief, ruled by jealousy, ruled by strife, ruled by selfishness, ruled by greed, ruled by sexual immorality, ruled by pride, and most clearly ruled by a revulsion and a hostility towards the things of God and his words of people and his words and his people. Now the Holy Spirit's life produces in us a new kind of life. Paul says it looks like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all oriented around the worship and love of God. The very Spirit of God produces these things in dead hearts, makes them new. If, if today in you there is a love for God, there is a desire for God, a longing for God, if this week you have fought your sin or confessed your sin in sincerity and seen God produced in you the fruit of his spirit, let me tell you why that is. It is because you are new. The old you, we'll talk about this in a moment, the old you died, died with Christ in his death, and now you are new. And, and more than that, at the very core of who you are, this is a promise and a gift that's, I don't feel it like I should feel it. I feel it right now a little bit more. But at the very core of you, at the very center of your spirit, united with your spirit, is Jesus. He comes into your heart to live forever. You who deserve wrath, who formerly did not want God and have indulged in many ways in selfishness and greed and morality, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus comes to live in you, in that person, to give himself fully to you. This is the greatest aim of the new covenant, for God to give himself to you, to unite his spirit with your spirit, to live in you and empower you to be and do what you could never be and do.
which chiefly is a lover of God. To empower you to be a lover of God above all things. A treasurer of God. This glory we've been talking about, wanting to see more of, this treasuring of the value of God, that's what he comes to do above all things, is to make you love and treasure, see God. Brothers and sisters, you are not who you were when you were born. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are who you are when you were born again. You are holy. You are holy. You are chosen. You are dearly loved. These are the words of God in Colossians 3.12. Holy, chosen, dearly loved. If you have repented of sin, that is, if you have changed your mind about it and agreed with what God says about it, and you placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you have so much more than forgiveness of sin. You are a new creature, and Jesus Christ lives at the very center of your being. So the new covenant has huge implications for how we process a book like Malachi. And before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to comment on two implications. The first, I think, will be more obvious than the second. The first is this. We do not look to obedience to the law for our acceptance before God. We do not look to obedience to the old covenant or the laws within the new covenant for our acceptance before God. We look to Jesus Christ. In Malachi, we see many practices decreed under the Mosaic covenant. We've seen some of them already. We'll see some more. Ritual, animal sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, Marriage only within the Jewish nation. Tithes to the temple and to its priests. Most of these practices, we understand in their specific unpacking in Malachi, they're not binding on us. They're outward expressions of the Mosaic covenant. So what we try to do is we try to find the principles within the Mosaic covenant that those practices represent. Like wholehearted obedience honor towards the Lord and his people as a church. Sacrificial giving. Giving our, our monies to the church or to the poor. Faithfulness in marriage. Sexual purity. It, it, the principles are the same. The practices may change. And in most cases, they do change. But the principles carry over. So we look for those principles of faithfulness, of generosity, of the fear of the Lord, of honoring the church, honoring one another. We see the ways when we do that in our hearts through Malachi bringing these principles to us, we see the ways that we fall short of this. And we should and need to respond by seeing our sin and confessing our sin and going to God with that. But we put our hope not in our changed heart. We put our hope not in our new forward behaviors that we're going to promise to do and commit to do. And as much as that might be what we should do, we don't put our hope there. We put our hope in what Jesus has done for us and not on our promise of improved performance. 
And you'll see in a second, I'm not, I'm not going to discount that improved performance. I'm saying we don't put our hope in that. We put our hope in the Lamb of God slaughtered for our sin. God does want our obedience, and refusing him obedience will bring his discipline. And just so no one is left unaware, ongoing, unrepentant, disobedience may even be an expression that we are not part of the new covenant, that our heart has not changed. But we need to tread very carefully here. The new covenant doesn't promise us perfection right now. It promises in many places that we will still battle with remaining sin that fights against our heart, fights against our new heart. And we need to remember above all things that in the new covenant, our obedience never merits our acceptance before God. It flows from our acceptance before God. Remember what the new covenant promises, power, a new heart to obey, but that comes through us through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we fall short, we need to look to Jesus and we need to say, Lord, I deserve these curses. I deserve the curse of breaking your law, but it has fallen on my slaughtered savior and I thank you that he was cursed for me. We'll come across curses in Malachi that will be threatened upon the people and we need to say those curses fell on my savior and that's where I'm putting my hope. But number two, we do not use, this is our second implication, we do not use the new covenant as an excuse to disobey the Lord. We use the new covenant as our confidence to obey God because of who the new covenant unites us to. We don't use the new covenant as an excuse and say, oh, I'm in a new covenant. I'm not under the law. I can do what I want. I don't have to obey. I don't have to respond. Jesus was slaughtered for me, period. That's not the promise of the new covenant. That's not honoring the new covenant. The new covenant is to give us confidence before God that we can obey him because of who the new covenant unites us to, who it gives us. It gives us God. It gives us the Holy Spirit. When Paul explains in the book of Romans that our salvation is based on God's free gift of righteousness and forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ, that it is all a free gift of grace despite all of our sins, he asks a really reasonable question <laughs> that he wants to answer, but he asks it ahead of time, right? He says, well, if this is true, shouldn't we just go on sinning? That's what he asks in Romans 6. Shouldn't we just go on sinning so that God's grace will just be expressed more and more and more in our lives? And he answers this question in a most surprising but perfect way. Listen to what he says. He says, may it never be. That's so awful. No, he doesn't say that, but that's, that is kind of contained in that may it never be phrase. But he doesn't say, may it never be. We'll go to hell. May it never be. How can we despise God so? He, the may it never be does have some revulsion in it. Like, oh my gosh, perish the thought. But here's what he says. How will we who died to sin live any longer in it? Should we go on sinning? No, Paul says, you died to that. 
Paul is talking about this reality that we have to come back to again and again that's ours in the new covenant. Our union with Jesus Christ. Our union with Jesus Christ. We are united with Jesus Christ. He is the gift of the new covenant. When you came to Jesus Christ, he did more than come into you and take up a certain room in your life. He united his spirit with your spirit. You're still you, but you are never you without Jesus anymore. There is no more Holly Walker, period. There is only Holly in Christ. There is no more Donna. There is only Donna in Christ. There's no more Jacob. There is only Jacob in Christ. You are still you, but you are never you without Jesus in you. And listen, Jesus is still Jesus, but he is never him without you in him. That's precious. You are still you, but never without Jesus in you. And Jesus is still Jesus, but for eternity, never without you in him. Never. Remember what he said in John? In that day you will know that I am in you and you are in me and I am in my Father. This is why Ephesians 2 doesn't just say you are a new creation. Don't gloss over this. It says you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, speaks to this union with Jesus Christ. This him being in you, you being in him, inseparable, indissolvable, indivisible, forever. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 puts it this way. Anyone who is joined to Christ is one spirit with him. I wish I could say this more theologically profound. Brothers and sisters, this is crazy. (laughs) I like to have my tea like the English like it. I have two English allusions today. (laughs) I like to have my tea with milk. And when I pour the milk in my tea and mix it together, something new and wonderful happens. It's super yummy. (laughs) Now, the milk molecules don't stop being milk molecules. I think if you were a scientist and you looked, you'd find milk in that tea. And the tea doesn't stop being tea. If you looked, you'd see the tea properties absorbed in the water still in there. But I can no longer tell where one ends and the other begins. There's tea, there's milk, but they're together in a way that it's indissolvable. It's unseparatable. They're one. (laughs) You and Jesus are one. You are not Jesus, (laughs) okay? Jesus is not you, but you and Jesus are one spirit. That is what union with Christ means. That's why marriage is such a profound analogy of our life with God. As closely connected in body, mind, and soul, and spirit can two people get is the best marriage possible, right? It's just a picture, just a hint of something much deeper. This is incredible truth. 
And here's, it's all over the New Testament. Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 tell you that your union with Christ means that you experienced what he experienced. And he experienced what you experienced. Listen, Romans 6 and Ephesians 2 tell us that our union with Christ means that you died with him at Calvary. Because you were with him, united with him. And you rose out of the grave with him on Easter Sunday because you were united with him. He doesn't go anywhere without you. He didn't go to the cross without you. He didn't rise from the grave without you. When Jesus died on the cross, that person you used to be was there. And he killed that person when he killed, when he was killed. That's why you're not the old person you were. That person's dead. And when Jesus rose from the grave because you were in him and with him, you rose with him. A new person came to life in his new life. You are now a new person, but you are a new person in Christ Jesus, not independent of him. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you with his sunglasses so that he only sees his son. No, he looks at you and he sees you but he sees you inside his son. Jesus is still Jesus, but never without you in him. You are still you, but never without Jesus in you. Wherever Jesus is, and right now he is at the Father's right hand, in his Father's very throne room, guess where you are? You are seated with him in heavenly places before the Father's right hand right now in your spirit. That's a real thing, brothers and sisters. I know you don't understand it. I don't either. It's metaphysical. It's outside of time and space, I think, but it's true. And wherever you are in this room right now or in front of your computer screen tonight or watching something on TV on your couch, guess what? Jesus is right there with you doing that with you. Not, not necessarily enjoying it or not necessarily affirming it. That's one of the horrible things that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, that they were, they were going to the temple to unite themselves with prostitutes. Paul said, you're part of Christ. You're, you're Christ's very body. You're his members. Are you going to take the property, the members of Christ, and go into a prostitute? May it never meet. You're going to bring Jesus, drag him into that place? That's what happens. Wherever you are, Jesus is there. Wherever Jesus is, you are there. And listen, he's not, he's in you. He's not just sitting dormant in you. He is now your life. He's your power to obey. He lives in you to give to you. When you look to him in faith, in prayer, he produces in you that which is in him. He produces the strength that's in him, the love that's in him, the goodness that's in him. And this is why Paul expects so much of believers in the New Testament. Did you ever notice that Paul isn't filling every other word with, oh, we're such sinners, we're so horrible. Oh, we blow it again, don't we? Day after day, we blow it again. And I know we struggle, but that's not how Paul talks most of the time. James talks a little bit more like that. But Paul talks, and James is not happy, by the way. I want to be careful. Lord, protect me from being glib about your word. James just has a different tone is what I'm trying to say. But Paul expects much of us because of the new covenant. He is always asking and expecting 
you to live up to the reality of the new covenant. And he always starts with the reality of the new covenant when he talks about us. I mean, he so often does. It's beautiful. Listen to Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of light. He doesn't say, you better obey so you get to be light. He says, you're, you're already light, so walk like it. The new covenant, it's a gift. God created this in you, so live it out. Romans 6, 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Right? It starts with the new covenant. He brought you from death to life. So present yourself to God as that thing. Believe that's true about you. Give yourself to God on that basis, not to earn something, not to try to get somewhere you aren't. No, believe that you already are and live that way. That's the way Paul talks. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. <clears throat> He's using this, this idea of leaven as a symbolism of sin. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that is the old sin, that you may be a new lump. And then he says, as you really are, a new lump. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus did his job. You're new. So live like it. Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ already. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on earthly things. That is on sinful things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you see this language repeated again and again? This is true about you, so live like it. Not live like it so this becomes true about you. This is new covenant language, folks. It's living out of the promise of the new heart, the new spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ in you language. You are not who you were. There is no longer Michelle. There is only Michelle in Christ and Christ in Michelle. And Paul says it again and again, and therefore act like it. And of course, we use prayer and scripture and worship and friendship and confession and communion and worship and all these things we, we use as means to fight for this new life that we have. But we have, we have it. <clears throat> I'm landing the plane in a way I never imagined I necessarily do, but with a Downtown Abbey illustration. <laughs> have you ever watched Downtown Abbey? Raise your hand if you've watched Downtown Abbey. I'm, I'm not ashamed because I love my wife. And sometimes Lori's over there and I just see some. <laughs> who, who has not seen Downtown Abbey? Raise your hand if you've not seen it. Ouch. Sorry, Downtown Abbey ratings. But let me tell you, it's a show about the lives of, and don't, like, I know Downtown Abbey people know this is probably not the right way to, right way to refer to them, but for us simple folk, it's a show about the lives of royals and their help staff. Royals and their help staff. The aristocrats, the rich ones, they stay upstairs. <laughs> the help staff is always downstairs or in the kitchen, cooking, cleaning, dishwashing, laundry, butlering, preparing to go serve them wherever they are. But they're usually staying, the show is usually about their conversations in their rooms and the royal people's conversations in their rooms. And there's some interesting intersections, but it's very clear there's a great separation between the royals and the help. And for the help to get cozy or even eat with the royals would be anathema. 
And they know that. They don't even try. And the royals know that. They don't even, you know, they don't even fear it. It would get them thrown out. Each class knows its own place. And each class is expected to act according to their blood, so to speak. If you have royal blood, you act like a royal. You eat where a royal eats. You talk like a royal talks. If you're the help, your bloodline is help, you act like the help. You marry the help. You befriend the help, not the royals. Spiritually speaking, do you know who is in your blood? A royal. You're a royal priesthood. Spiritually speaking, do you know your family line? It's not Adam. Your family line, <laughs> it's not the house of Windsor. It's something much better. You are of the house of Christ. He is in your bloodline. He is your family. He is in you, flowing through your spiritual veins. His blood flowing through your spiritual veins as your very life. You are in him. You're in the house of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the beginning here. When Moses inaugurated the old covenant, remember what he did with the blood? He sprinkled the blood on the people. He sprinkled it on them. But the blood only reached the outside. It fell on them. But it didn't get inside. It never had any effect on the inside. It never went deeper than external. When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, he took the cup and he said, drink this, all of you, this cup of the new covenant, of the new covenant. It's not on you. It goes in you. Take me into you. I'm your life now. And yes, it was a sign of his blood poured out for sin. Absolutely. But when Jesus says in John 6 these words, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is pointing to more than just atonement. And when he says this is the cup of the new covenant, he's pointing to more than just atonement. And when he says drink it down and alludes to this in John, he's pointing more than just forgiveness. He is reminding those who partake of his atonement that they also partake of his life. Brothers and sisters, as we take the cup of the new covenant this morning, let us remember what it tells us, that we're not only forgiven through Jesus' blood, we are indwelt by his very life. Amen? Amen.